and welcome to another episode of the MIT Enterprise Forum podcast. I'm Taylor McBride, the producer of this podcast, where we feature interviews and insights from startup founders, business luminaries, and technology leaders. Our podcast complements the MIT Enterprise Forum events and live programs. This episode of the podcast is part of our 40th anniversary celebration. We're telling our community members MITEF story and asking them questions about the past, present, and future for them and for the MIT Enterprise Forum. Our interviewer today is Al Mink, former MITEF DC Baltimore board member and current managing partner at Systems Spirit. Al is interviewing Terry Shaw. CEO of Hook Mobile, who actually came through the MIT Enterprise Forum with one of his previous ventures. He was the founder and CEO of InfoMatch, which eventually sold for several hundred million dollars. Terry has a lot of ideas and a lot of experience. So without further ado, enjoy the interview. Hi, good evening and welcome. Uh, today we're interviewing another successful entrepreneur. Terry, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself, tell us a little bit about uh, your ventures and your role at the MIT Enterprise Forum. Welcome. Yeah, thank you, Al. Um, yes, my name is Terry Shao. I was uh, long 1998. I was in the management of technology program. Uh, recently attended the 20-year uh, reunion back in June. I graduated in 1998 by late 19. 99, I started my first company. The company was called InfoMatch. And believe it or not, I actually started the company with two other MIT alums. Uh, one of them was my classmate, Fang Slow. And very quickly, very quickly, um, I find out about MIT Enterprise Forum and uh, started to get involved. Um, I think it was, I remember a couple of things. One was pitch to the angels, which uh, I got some training, ended up actually presenting uh, the company InfoMatch to a fairly large audience. It felt like a couple hundred people in the room, fairly large room. And that went really well. Even though I didn't get any investment directly from that pitch, uh, we find our, our uh, VP of engineering who came up to me after the, the, the pitch and, uh, and we started talking and, and ultimately joined the company as the, uh, the, the VP of engineering. And also, I believe there's, you know, there's a lot of mentors that I have talked to. Uh, so it gave me, really gave me uh, an opening to the window of entrepreneurship and startups and uh, venture capital. Back, you know, back in the days, you know, we almost thought of the, uh, the, the venture capitalists as God. And if we got their money, we would, we would be successful. You know, it was, it was almost a foregone conclusion that, you know, that we could build a business uh, with, with venture funding. Uh, luckily, it did happen that way, and we got the venture funding about uh, six months after uh, after I did a pitch at MIT Enter Enterprise Forum. Uh, I'll tell a little little story about how we actually got funded. It was uh, a, a a startup event put together by Guy Kawasaki, who uh, who has since written a couple books, and he did what was called Garage.com, I believe. Uh, it was basically uh, a way to promote entrepreneur, you know promote startups and entrepreneurship. It was, I believe it might've been his only event he put together in, the, in Washington, D.C. Uh, this was in uh, uh, year 2000, uh, after the, the, the dot-com bubble. I actually used my training that I got from MIT Enterprise Forum, joined the uh, elevator pitch competition, and luckily won first place. 
and the uh, the price of winning that first place. Actually, I didn't know it at the time, but uh, it was top three. The top three got a chance to uh, pitch a, a longer version of that elevator pitch. I think it was the full deck. I think we were given about 15 or 20 minutes to pitch our full deck to a uh, room of venture capitalists. And of course, the, actually the first place uh, did have an advantage because I was the last to pitch and therefore had a chance to mingle with the, uh, with the VCs after the pitch because the other two had got, come, pitched, and then left. Uh, in any case, that actually directly led to a term sheet, the first one I ever got. Uh, just a couple weeks, uh, I think it wasn't even like, you know, 10, or 10 days later, within a week, we, we were invited to pitch to their entire, entire team. Uh, this was Draper Atlantic. And I think within a couple of weeks, we had our first turn sheet. So, uh, so it was really, really helpful to, to have this connection. And uh, um, I would certainly suggest any uh, aspiring entrepreneurs to check out the MIT Enterprise Forum. About 10 years ago, I believe, I also had the chance, uh, I got invited back and gave a talk at the uh, MIT Enterprise Forum Gala. Um, and I really enjoyed that as well. So uh, all in all, had a very good experience. And of course, having gone to MIT, there's, there's a lot of pride in, in, in our institution and the ability that we could generate uh, and create innovations. Okay. Well, thank you, Terry. Hey, could you tell us a little bit more about InfoMatch, how, you, how it started, what it did, how it grew, the, the life cycle of your firm, your, your venture? Yeah, absolutely. InfoMatch was, the concept was actually very simple. And I remember the way I pitched the elevator pitch uh, back in the day, which this again was year 2000. Uh, and you, Al, you're, you're old enough to remember this. But in the early days, mobile operator networks did not have the ability to, to allow you to send text messages across networks. So if you want a, a, a ATMT subscriber, you were only able to send a text message to another ATMT subscriber. And if you're Verizon, uh, you can only send to Verizon. And this was due to a, a couple of uh, limitations. Number one, in, the, in North America, the telephone numbers effectively between fixed line and mobile, they look the same. Uh, they're both, you know, 10 digit numbers. So basically what happened with these uh, networks is if they see a number even outside of the network, they don't recognize the number at all. The second issue was there were a lot of different standards. When the voice switch, you know, if the voice telephone network was invented, they invented the switch in between to route the call properly. SMS was never designed that way. And even worse, was that the network protocol and the interface, interface standards were all different. If you uh, remember back in the days, we had different standards like TDMA, CDMA, GSM, IDEN, um, and so on. So what happened was if, you, if the network runs on a different network protocol, not only the, the underlying protocol is different, even the length of the SMS was not the same. So GSM was like 160 characters, CDMA was like 140 characters and so on. So we came up with the, the idea that, uh, first of all, that, that made no sense. And the example I gave was if you had a Hotmail e email address and you could only send an email to Hotmail, that's not really very, not, not very useful. Uh, Yahoo, you can only send to Yahoo. That didn't make any sense at all. So what we ended up developing was really 
a cloud service, even though this, the, the term cloud wasn't invented yet. Uh, we created a cloud service that allow, you know, it was a hosted service that allowed the operator to send any out-of-network messages to us with the protocols that they're familiar with. So effectively, we built the interfaces. We're able to talk to any networks that's out there, and they didn't have to change a thing. They, they continue to operate the same way they do, and any outgoing messages that the, they did not recognize the destination, they were simply rerouted to us. And we will go ahead and figure it out where the uh, destination network is, translate into that you know, protocol and deliver it. Uh, in fact, when we first started to do this, of course, you know, you, you, you have to have two carriers that allow us to, to be connected and able to be able to exchange messages. So what we ended up doing was we actually hacked it so that we use the email gateways and we hacked it to, we hacked the user experience. So if you're an AT&T subscriber, you send a message that's, you know, that's outgoing to a different network. We will actually look up the underlying email address and we were able to fake the message so that the, the user felt like the message was delivered. And we actually delivered the message on the other side using the email gateway and then actually convert the reply over email domain and stuff back the reply message. So we were actually able to hack the user experience even before the, the mobile operators became our customers. And that, that, all, that actually became the differentiation that allowed us to sign the first deals. We launched the first uh, network, uh, two networks, AT&T and uh, T-Mobile at the time was called VoiceStream and never looked back. Uh, we had as much as 80% market share. By the time we sold the company in 2006, we went processing uh, well north of 10 billion messages a month and ultimately, you know, sold the company to a public company, Sybase, uh, for uh, $425 million. The other thing that we did well, I felt, was in addition to create a cloud service model, rather than back in the day, people are more familiar with selling the system, creating a box and sell it to the, to the mobile operator. We purposely did not want to do that. We did not want to sell a box and leave. We, we saw this future with, with taking just a little piece of the action and be able to scale and grow with the service, you know, because we believe in the demand and we believe in the network effect, the Mark Health uh, effect. That's an amazing story, Gary. Congratulations. A, a cloud model on the technology side and a, kind of a pay-as-you-go transaction fee on the business side, both innovative for the time. And doing that, you know, as the dot-com bubble was bursting, congratulations. So you have a, you moved on to a new venture today. Do you just want to give us a short elevator pitch on what you're doing today? Yeah, absolutely. So I've, I've uh, done two other startups since then. One, uh, one was in, uh, in the space of mobile point of sale. Uh, that was invested by uh, Bessemer and Visa. And uh, I, I, most recently, I just uh, sold my latest startup called Hook Mobile. And the essence of Hook Mobile is also very simple. The telecom networks has traditionally been a device-first uh, network. So you've got your device, and because the device has to communicate with another device, they're assigned telephone numbers so that you, know, so that you could identify what devices they are. You know, in the, in the last, you know, five, seven, eight years, ever since Google Voice started uh, using the, what we call the virtual numbers, it really put the, uh, put the telecom network upside down in the sense that you start with the telephone numbers first. And because a telephone number could be attached to any IP endpoint, it could now represent any device 
that you have. And then obviously with the virtual number, it opened up a slew of different use cases, uh, which I can talk a little bit about right now. There's number of use cases. Number one obviously is a virtual telephone number with a virtual telephone a device enables you to have temporary numbers. If people have watched Netflix, House of Cards on Netflix, uh, you may remember some politicians refer their phones as the burner phone. So effectively, it's the phone number that when you burn, when you want to cancel the number, you, you remove any association with the telephone number and all the records are erased. So now you you know, allows, you know, so for example, if you want to sell something on Craigslist, uh, you don't necessarily want to publish your real mobile number on the internet. Uh, so now you can have get a temporary number for that. Uh, another use case is the demand, the on-demand applications. So for example, if you take an Uber ride, they don't necessarily want the driver to call the passenger or the passenger to call the driver directly due to privacy reasons and, and, and business model reasons. So now these virtual numbers are really the anonymized layer that sits in between the, uh, the different, you know, the demand side and the supply side. And in fact, Uber, Uber told us the story of why they adopted the virtual number was because, you know, they had these early celebrity customers in Hollywood. And once they got their numbers, uh, that once they gave their number to the to the driver, they started getting, they started getting calls, <laughs> um, and that they they very, Uber very quick quickly realized that this this wasn't going to work, so they move on to this uh, virtual number strategy. And another use case is nowadays, you know, if you go to a restaurant, uh, very much they don't give you a physical buzzer anymore. They actually just ask for your mobile number and they, they will text you when the table is ready. Or if you get a reminder from your doctor's office, your dental office and things of that nature. So these are all you know, applications and capabilities enabled by virtual numbers. And Hook Mobile is basically a provider of, a, uh, of virtual numbers. Uh, we have telephone numbers in uh, over uh, 65 countries. These numbers are used for voice calls and SMS messages. Again, you know, in, in the, these types of applications and use cases that, that I just described. Well, that's, that's an incredible serial entrepreneur. Uh, we fast forward, to, as you look at the entrepreneur ecosystem today, different in many ways from what it was back when you were starting up your company. Yes. Um, what would you mean the MIT Enterprise Forum that they focus on for, the, for now in the next 10 years to help the entrepreneurs and the ecosystem? Yeah, great question. To your point, it is very, very different. Uh, and I'll, I'll touch on a couple of things. Number one, the term sheet and the venture capital world used to be a black box. It used to be a really a, you know old boys club in a way. Nobody would explain to you what these terms actually meant, what the uh, the holes are for you to fall into. Uh, so the, it was really a, a tremendous learning experience to do to lead a company and and be in the position to negotiate these different terms through multiple rounds of funding. Um, nowadays, everything being everything on the internet, everything is transparent. So the investors really no longer have these advantages. They lose these uh, abilities to, in some way, screw the entrepreneurs. Uh, so that's that's really progress. Uh, number two, there's really, uh, there used to be this big 
chasm between sort of the angel investors and venture capital. It was really difficult to jump from getting some a little bit of seed funding to venture capital, which means you know raising millions of dollars. And it used to, you know, and, and in our day, it did cost us that much money because you had to, you know, effectively create your own infrastructure. Now with the cloud services, with pay-as-you-go business model, with everything that you could use. And in fact, with a lot of freemium uh, software out there and, and open source out, open source software out there, you can create a company really with, you know, very limited resources. And you could actually, and, and C funding is, is also much easier to acquire. And many times you don't, you no longer actually need a path uh, enabled by the traditional venture capitalists. Uh, you can create a business and, and find alternative uh, funding sources. You know, in some hardware companies, they're able to do crowd, you know, crowdfunding, things of that nature. Uh, so I think today the entrepreneurs can uh, have the ability to create you know, large scale companies with, you know, without raising venture capital money, which I believe is, is a huge difference. The other, the other difference is you can actually raise C capital north of $10 million, which is obviously unheard of in our day. Uh, C capital used to meant at most maybe 250,000 or half a million dollars was like C capital. Now you, you see people raising seed rounds or some, sometimes people calling pre-seed rounds at, you know, and they raised more than $10 million for it. So it's a very different day. Uh, I would say, back to your question, though, with MIT Enterprise Forum, I think mentorship is really something that it's always been lacking. Now, I think you know, nowadays with, you know, YCs and, and 500 startups, that's, they also try to make sure that there's enough mentors. Although in, in their sense, their mentors are maybe like a couple years experience. I think MIT Enterprise Forum has the ability to go across generations and be able to provide mentors that have a much more uh, diverse background and longer time horizon in terms of for these different types of business. Uh, I think the other thing is with the YC type uh, accelerator programs, they're generally mostly focused on consumer uh, applications and consumer, uh, you know, maybe small, medium business type products. I think MIT Enterprise has the opportunity to help the next generation of entrepreneurs to create uh, larger scale, bigger ideas. I think who I think it might have been I forgot who said it, but there was a saying that hey, you know, we want you to go take us to to Mars, and yet you give us 160 characters, right? Um, <laughs> making fun of Twitter, you know, meaning like you know like. A lot of entrepreneurs now have the ability to do much bigger things and, you know, less of the Silicon Valley type of entrepreneurs who are going to work on a, a consumer facing product or an application, uh, maybe for a very short time and then move on to something else. I think there, there might be a way to focus on longer horizon type projects and ideas with the MIT sort of science and uh, engineering uh, foundation and uh, the research capabilities. I think there may be a, an area that we could mentor not just the super young entrepreneurs doing consumer facing business, but maybe older entrepreneurs that are working on longer horizon type products. Well, Terry, it's great advice, the MIT Enterprise Forum focus on the tougher problems and maybe the, the non-cloud app approaches. 
and leverage the strengths of MIT and MIT grads to include mentoring. Yes. So, well, once again, I want to congratulate you on a very successful career as a serial entrepreneur. Thank you for your time today. Thank you for your support to MIT and MIT Enterprise Forum as well, coming back as a guest speaker, helping stand up the MIT Angels, all my angels at DC, and everything else you do for our entrepreneur ecosystem. All right, terrific. So, any closing comments? No, thank you very much. Uh, I know we're 12 hours different, but uh, yeah, have a great day today and uh, hope to see you soon. Established in 1978, the MIT Enterprise Forum is one of the oldest entrepreneurial support organizations in the world. These podcasts are produced by our Cambridge chapter and complement our in-person events and live programs where we bring together startup founders, investors, industry leaders, service providers, and the tech curious to inform, connect, and coach the early stage technology entrepreneur. As always, thank you for listening and see you next time.